be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right, we're going to spend the next little while reflecting on this text together. Let me get myself organized here for a second. All right, submission, being subject to something. That very word or that very phrase conjures up a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts, a lot of emotions, particularly uh, for women, I think. And And yet the principle is woven throughout today's text. It's mentioned on a number of occasions. However, you also may have noticed there's no discussion of marriage, no discussion of what it means to be a wife or what it means to a husband. Instead, there's a discussion of relationships between a Christian and the government and between servants and masters. The context of Peter's teaching on submission is not marriage Uh, yet. You got to come back next week to hear that one. But but it's about the civil, civil spheres of life and the business spheres of life. So if we could channel, just for a moment, the bard Bob Dylan, you know, with great apologies to him. Peter is telling Christians, you've got to submit to somebody. Everybody submits to somebody. The Bible makes it clear, no one is exempted from submission. This is not something for women only, for children only, only those who are weak or limited in in some way. And in fact, when when we fail to heed the call of the scriptures for many different kinds and sorts of submission then what we actually do is we make submission in marriage a kind of farce. See, if, if, if children or wives uh, you know, see other Christians failing to submit to authorities, well, why should they take uh, Peter or Paul's commands seriously in their relationships? See, we can't talk out of one side of our mouth about marriage and a different side of our mouths about the government. So I think the order of commands is significant here. Before we talk about marriage, again, that will be next week, we have to talk about these other kinds of relationship where there's, there's subjection or submission involved. Everybody has to submit to somebody. 
But who, you know, why, how, these are the things we're going to answer together. And, and we're going to deal with this, this section separately. First, the stuff about government, and then the stuff about, uh, you know, servants and masters. But first, we need to outline this principle of submission. What, what does Peter mean by it, um, and, and, and what, where, how does he kind of define it? And, and I don't really want you to think of submission to, to government and, and slaves and masters as separate issues. Rather, what he's going to do is he's going to apply the same principle in a number of different areas. And then we're going to close our time today talking about, well, where, where does the strength for submission actually come from? So that's kind of the framework. Principle of submission, uh, human authorities, uh, masters, and then the spiritual power for submission, kind of four parts. Verse 13, verse 18, open with very similar sentences. In each, Peter commands subjection, submission, from one group to another. In verse 13, Peter tells the whole church, all the Christians, be subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions like the emperor and his governments. And in verse 18, Peter tells servants to be subject to their masters. So the command he commands of Christians in general and servants in specifically is submission. What does he mean? Well, it's clear that submission can't be uh, only a female virtue. It has to be a Christian one. So Christians must understand what it means to submit. And because he uses the word over and over, he's going to use it again next week, it must have a, sim- a similar meaning in each case. It can't mean something very different for servants than it does for a Christian responding to their government. You can't defend unquestioning obedience of a servant to a master while not assuming the same or something similar might be true of Christians with the government. Now, the Greek word used in each case is this word hypotasso, which has, you know, a variety of meanings, makes it a little bit tricky to understand, but it means something like be in subjection to, bring under control, uh, or, or to submit. So we might say that this word hypotasso has some combination of showing deference, showing respect, and some kinds of obedience. And I'm going to switch back and forth between these two words, but I'm, but I'm kind of meaning hypotasso in, in each case. Submission is not not unquestioned or universal obedience. Neither does submitting to someone rule out exceptions. In every case where submission is commanded in all the scriptures, God remains the ultimate authority. He he can overrule any subordinate authority. There will be times when uh, slaves or servants should not submit to their masters. And there will be times that Christians do not have to submit to their political rulers. Peter is outlining a general principle. This is the normal way of life, the normal way things go, not always to be the case. It is to be disregarded, especially when the one you are submitting to is asking you to disobey God. If someone commands you, you know, not to pray or uh, not to worship or to commit some sort of evil act, Christians submit to God in that case rather than men. They obey God, not men. Submission is not to be disregarded when you don't like the commands, or if you think your master, you think your political ruler is stupid, or you disagree with them. Those things don't violate God's law. Folly folly doesn't, doesn't violate God's law. Therefore, masters and human authorities should not be disobeyed lightly. It's actually a pretty high bar that is set in this passage and others for disobedience. But that's sort of the general principle, okay? Submission, commanded by God, certain circumstances, certain relationships. So let's talk about submission to human authorities. Notice very carefully that submission to, human, to their civil authorities is done, quote, for the Lord's sake. Submission, then, it's not random, it's not by chance, but it's a command from God and a sort of symbol of one's faith. This is what it means to do something for the Lord's sake. You, it means you do it because, because you believe in God and even to demonstrate something about, about the faith, how you believe in God. 
But this is sort of the logical progression theologically. Christians believe God's sovereign. He commands the affairs of humanity. He raises up one king. He lowers another. He can do all that. Nothing outside uh, is outside of his control or power. So then an implication of, of that first belief is that among the human institutions that do exist, they exist because God has permitted them to. And really, more than a bare permission, he's raised them up. He's put them in that place for his own purposes. And that goes for emperors, but it also goes for all the underlings. Paul calls them governors here. But it really refers to like, you know, all sorts of people. And Peter tells them, well, part of what they're doing there is they're punishing evildoers and they're praising those who do good. And you're like, that sounds lovely. You know, when, when, when it works right, great. And sometimes it has worked. And especially when the law of the land reflects Christian values, like, this is great. He's punishing what we think is evil. He's rewarding what we think is good. But of course, a clever person will object. Well, what about when it doesn't work? What if you have an emperor that rewards evil and punishes good? Why would God raise that person up? Why, why, why would they allow, it's usually him, why would they allow him to rule? And as you can imagine, especially as you consider the scope of world history, this gets very confusing, very hard to understand. And even take the recent example of, you know, Vladimir Putin in Russia. Why did God put him there? Why why is he in this position of power? You know, sometimes when we look back across the broad sweep of history, we can see, oh, this is why God did this. This is, you know, what was going on. But lots of times we can't. And we can't even really offer an entire answer to this question, but I will say this. Wondering about this, having doubts, having questions is fine, but it doesn't change the principle. Because you should remember, Peter wrote this letter with this principle when Nero was emperor. Nero, like one of the most infamously cruel emperors. And whatever you believe about Putin, like Nero was worse. And even to this emperor, this terrible guy, Peter says, you should submit for the Lord's sake. See, Peter doesn't write this when, like, it's a Christianized country and the leader is a Christian and they have Judeo-Christian laws on the books. No, he writes it when Christians were a small minority under an oppressive ruler. And so if he, they can apply it then, then, then we can apply it now. Something happened with the microphone? <laughs> okay. Do you want to see if you can fix it? Uh, Peter carefully notes, our submission is not only to the emperor, uh, but also to the governor sent by the emperor. And it seems that he doesn't have a single position uh, in mind, but simply means any, any kind of representative of the emperor, any, any representative of the king. So he's talking about all the levels of political and, and civil government they're, they're to be submitted to. Now, noting the exception, that, that holds as long as they're not commanding, requiring anything of us, contrary to the commands of God. If the will of an emperor crosses the will of God, the emperor is to be disobeyed on that point. You know, this belief, and this teaching like here, teaching in Romans 13 and other places, this is part of the reason why, why the session, the elders of our church, have submitted to government health regulations and interventions during the COVID era. So look, has, has social distancing, the wearing of masks, limitation on gathering sizes, like amongst other things, has that changed the way we function as a church, changed the way we worship? It, like, sure, of course it has. Does it, in our opinion contradict the scriptures or cause us to disobey God? It was our opinion, no. And look, you can play hypothetical games, and hypothetical games are sometimes terrible, sometimes fun. Well, what if they ban this? What if they ban that? Sure, okay. Maybe they will. 
But so far, we had seen no reason to disobey. That doesn't mean we agree with the government. It doesn't mean we think they're wise. It doesn't mean a lot of things. All it means is we believe we should be in submission to the government God has placed over us. And I'll confess, at times during the pandemic, especially when Ontario's restrictions were quite severe, and like 10 minutes away, Quebec's were far more open, like maybe we should meet across the river. You know, then we, then we could do this, or then we, then we could do that. And it, it's an interesting question. But I think what each Christian in each church is called to do is to submit to the government it has. So God didn't give us the Quebec government. I mean, for most of us, some of you guys live across, across the river. God didn't give us the Texan government, nor the Australian What he gave us is the Ottawa government, the Ontario government, and the Canadian government, and it's to those human institutions that we submit to. And in that, another thing, I'll get even more controversial if you want, I worry about how I see some Christians submitting to the civil authorities. For instance, one of the most common flags flown during the recent, you know, trucker, convoy, protest, occupation, whatever you want to call it, was like the F expletive Trudeau. And based on the news stories and my own anecdotal evidence, there were quite a number of Christians involved in the protests. So did they fly that flag? Did they, did they give it a thumbs up as they walked past it? Whatever your opinion is of Justin Trudeau as prime minister, that's not appropriate for Christians. That's not giving honor to those who would deserve your honor. Whatever you think about him, God put him in that place. And I see all kinds of comments. The best government is no government. All taxation is theft. All politicians are crooked. Like, look, an intellectual debate, a thought exercise, that's fine. Let's get in a classroom and debate about how how big our small government should be. But open animosity, hostility towards our leaders is not. In our submission, we are to honor those whom God has set over us. Now, one really interesting sidebar about this passage is that in the West— we tend to undersubmit to authorities. <laughs> we're, 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 more, we're more suspicious, we're more cynical, we're more individualistic, we're more a lot of things. But from what we know, the people Peter was writing to probably thought the opposite. See, lots of commentators point out that emperor, um, emperor cults were quite common in the Roman Empire. There were groups of people all over the place who thought of and treated the emperor as divine, even offered him worship uh, or half divine. And you could never question him. You'd never say no to the emperor. If Caesar says it, you know, it it, it goes. These people tended to oversubmit to authorities. They're never never saying no, and therefore they need to be uh, nudged in a different direction. And so to these Christians that Peter's writing to, Peter has to emphasize they're merely human institutions. The emperor is a human. (laughs) The governors that he sends to to command you things, just men. So submit to them, sure. Unquestioned obedience, no. Christ is Lord was an extremely revolutionary thought for them. If you are a Christian, though, you're commanded to be subject to the human institutions of your land. Now, why? (laughs) Why? Well, look at verse 15. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing so, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, one of the main accusations against the early Christians is that they subverted the peace. They caused division in the empire. And Peter's like, let's avoid that distraction if we can. Why cause unnecessary offense? Why distract yourself in this way? Christians being good citizens, as far as they can, will silence these sort of the unjust accusations. And then look at verse 16. Peter says, he reminds them, look, you're totally free. You've been set free by Christ. So what are you going to do with your freedom? Are you going to use it to serve? 
Or are you going to use it to do evil? Since you're free to do anything, why not do something good? Essentially, he's telling them, don't be contentious. Don't, don't make problems where, where you don't need to. Say you've got a, an issue with Roman tax law. You don't like your bracket or whatever. Well, why let that get in the way? You've got so many important spiritual things to worry about. You're trying to share the gospel. Don't complicate it unless you have to. And sort of by way of summary, he kind of ends this section with these four rapid-fire commands. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You know, we don't have to treat everyone the same. That's, not, that's what he's saying. There's different treatment of fellow Christians. We love some. We fear God. We honor, we honor everyone. Maybe think about submission to government in this way. Submitting to the government in everything but where it crosses biblical teaching, it just demonstrates that Christ is our highest value. It says, well, you know, we're, we're kind of happy to pay taxes as long as we get to worship God. It, it proves, like, I may have personal opinions on who would be a good leader for Canada or whatever, but the thing we will go to the wall for, the thing we'll fight about, is obeying the Scriptures. And we're not going to make secondary issues primary. So he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay, part three. Submission to masters. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. What kind of people are being told to submit in verse 18? Well, they're not employees, they're not contract workers, they're not students. Instead, they're this large group of people, quite, quite, have a, quite a bit of variety, but who lacked mobility and lacked the right to choose their employment. And the Roman Empire had a huge numbers of both Slave slaves, which we'll talk about in a second, and even like these servants, which were somewhere kind of on the spectrum between what we would consider kind of a modern employee and, and someone with absolutely no rights. But what we do know is that somewhere between 10 to 20 percent, depending on how you count, of the total population in the Roman Empire was enslaved to, to one degree or another. Five to seven million people. So that's a minority population, 10 to 20 percent, but it's a substantial minority. And also what we know historically is that Christianity in the early days was particularly composed of the lower social classes. So every church, any, a church like ours most definitely would have had a, a large number of slaves or, or household servants, whatever, in them. Now how did someone become a slave? Well, a couple different ways. They might be captive from war. Uh, they might be you know, imported from some region conquered by Rome. They'd be sent back to different Roman territories to work as slaves. Uh, of course, some were made slaves unjustly, you know, kidnapped, forced into slavery in some way. Uh, if you were born to a parent, uh, or if your parents were slaves, then you were automatically a slave yourself. And also, the other way it happened is if you entered extreme poverty, if you had debts you could not repay, your final move was to sell yourself or, and your family, potentially, into slavery, and that would pay off some of your debts. Now, interestingly, slaves were often better educated than their owners, because their owners needed them to manage their affairs, uh, you know, to manage their household, to manage finances. Slaves served as doctors, as nurses, teachers, business managers, all sorts of these things, tradespeople. Some slaves in the Roman Empire were indeed able to purchase their freedom, but by and large, slavery was slavery. It's awful. Particularly if you were more in like the, the manual labor end of slavery, if you worked on farms or in mines or whatever. They, they had no rights, subject to all kinds of abuse, you know, physical, sexual, otherwise. All this is well chronicled, chronicled you know, historically. So this point, when you read 1 Peter, you might ask, well, why does Peter tell them to submit to their masters? Isn't the whole thing unjust? 
Shouldn't, shouldn't we be just tearing, the, tearing it down? Why isn't he calling for a revolution? Doesn't God love justice? Isn't God opposed to abuse? Well, yes, of course God is. Of course God is, that like, God is like that. On an emotional level, it is hard to understand why Peter doesn't attack the institution itself. But that's not his primary concern. His primary concern, like a good pastor, is to help people live life wherever they find themselves. See, speaking as a pastor, I don't spend a lot of time doing career planning for you. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to figure out how to get you to, like, the next stage of your career. In fact, if you ask me to pray, you know, I need a new job or whatever, I'll gladly do that. But I'll also be trying to figure out how do I attend to the state of their soul in the midst of the job change. I want to ask spiritual questions. Are, are you able to trust God with what's going on? Are, are any temptations that are kind of working their way into your hearts? So see, what Peter's doing is he's telling them, here's how you live in the state in which you find yourself. Just like if you're a Christian, you're trying to figure out how to live underneath a a tyrannical emperor. So Christian slaves, Christian servants are, are called to live with faith under masters who are good and kind and under masters who are bad and who are unjust. And though Peter does not condemn sort of the institution of slavery, I would, say, I would say this based on what the rest of the scriptures teach. Slavery is not in the created order. It's not given by God to humanity as a way for us to function. That's not how it works. Defenses of slavery by Christian thinkers, and they're out there, those are wicked. Those are not to be trusted. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ is laid a foundation for a transformation of society that will understand that humans should not own each other or abuse each other. But Peter's concern is not to transform the institution of slavery in Asia Minor, but to help Christian slaves be faithful to God. And that's why he tells them to submit to their masters with respect. And not just if their master is good, but even if they're unjust. He even goes so far as to say, if you look at verse 19, he says it twice, but first in 19, he says, such submission is grace. It's charis, it's grace. When one suffers unjustly because they love God, that's commendable from God, before God. Now, besides laying a foundation for the abolition of slavery, let's ask some hard questions. I don't want to let us, let us off the hook. I don't know if I said that right. I don't, I don't want to let, let us off the hook here. Well, let's get to the difficult part. What does it mean when, 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 when Peter says, Christian slaves, submit to your masters? What does this passage have to say to a young woman being sex trafficked? Right? Isn't that the question? What is it to say to a person who's been, who's been manipulated or forced or, or threatened and is functionally a slave? What do we say to that person? Oh, go submit to your master? Well, we must return to our definition. Submission is not, remember I said at the beginning, it's not outright unquestioned obedience. Submission is, does not mean there are no exceptions. So yes, if we have a young woman who is being sinned against in sexual slavery... She ought to be as wise and cunning and do her best to escape that. And we would commend and support organizations that that try to help such people. Of course, that's an exception. And if a person is being manipulated or threatened or forced into functional slavery, they do not need to go on being sinned against. They should take the opportunity, if if and when it presents itself, to, to be free. There are exceptions to the rule. Also, our workplaces are not slavery. (laughs) I mean, in nearly every case that I could kind of think of, in nearly everywhere, you're free to leave. You're free to quit. Yet, is there an an application here for difficult bosses? 
for life underneath someone who's treating you very unjustly? Sure. And I think human bosses actually fall somewhere in between this section and the last one. They're kind of a human institution with some kind of power, you know, but they're also someone who has power over you in like the business life realm. In general, I think Christians are to honor and respect and submit to these people. And by that example, they show they love God. And remember, there are exceptions, of course. But Peter's concern is to help slaves faithfully submit to their masters for the sake of Christ. They obey them, they show them deference, they show them respect, they honor them. And he says, in that process, if you're doing that and you suffer for it, then that honors Christ. The point is, everybody submits to somebody. You're going to have an authority. You're going to have someone who has power over you in your life. What will you do? How will you live in such a circumstance? If you are a Christian, be subject to them in the Lord. Let's talk about the final thing here. The spiritual power for submission. Submission is hard, right? Like, it's, it's flat out difficult. Now, why is that? Well, it's an act of self-denial. It's a, it, it goes against our normal impulses. See, our normal impulse, when someone is unjust towards us, we want to be unjust back. Oh, you cut me off in traffic. I'm going to zoom around you and, you know, and, and cut them off in traffic. If the government treats me unfairly and, and thwarts my rights, I want at least the right to hate them for it and to oppose them in any way I can. Uh, we want life to sort of be tilted in our direction. We want to come out on top. And submission says, don't do that. We're commanded to walk with God in the midst of the difficulty of life, even if the government oppresses us, even if our masters enslave us. So the real question is for the Christian, where do you get the power for such things? Well, look at verse 21. For to this, that's, he's talking about submission, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. This is the gospel message. Why do we submit? Because Christ submitted to suffering for us. Remember how I told you the Greek word underneath all this submission, subjection, was this word hypotasso? In Philippians 2, when it describes, when Paul was talking about what Christ did, he, he says, Christ hypotassoed himself to the Father, giving himself over to incarnation, suffering, and death. Why? To pay the penalty of sin and to leave us an example. And if you look at verse 22 through 25, Peter just sort of shreds all the reasons we'd want to offer as reasons we don't want to submit. And he does that not even by denigrating the reasons, but by pointing to Christ. See, we're told to submit and we'll protest, but I haven't done anything wrong. I'm being unjustly treated. And Peter says, Christ committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And we'll protest. I'm allowed to speak this way about my oppressor because they've said terrible things about me. My words are justified because of how they behaved. And Peter says, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When suffered, he did not threaten. And we'll protest. Submission is too hard. It's too heavy. And Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And maybe at the end, we'll just shrug our shoulders and say, well, I can't change what I want. And what I want is to get back at them. I can't stop wanting to get them. And Peter says, by his wounds, you've been healed. You were a lost sheep. You were wandering away, but you've been brought back to the chief shepherd. 
And I would tell you today, if you are a Christian, there is enough in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to meet all your needs for submission. Look, I understand it's hard. I don't like it either. But Christ went first, and he has provided everything we need. And in one sense, it's all happened in the past. And if you're a Christian, all these things have happened already. You're definitively changed. You're definitively sanctified. But in a different sense, it's all growing in real time. Peter says, Jesus left us an example to follow. And it's a really fun word he uses. It's called a hippogrammon. And for the Greeks, what they had was this kind of tracing paper, this kind of like vellum paper that children would use when, they're, when they were learning their letters. And if you've ever been around kindergartners, you'll kind of understand the concept. When, when children learn to write their letters, the first step is they don't just sort of start making marks. They begin to trace fully formed letters just over and over. You're just tracing, and, and, and you, your, your brain and your hand learn, learn to cooperate. So you don't, you don't learn to write by, oh, I'm going to make an A, however I want to make an A. No, no, you learn to write by copying what someone else has done. And, and Peter is saying, Jesus is the tracing paper. That's, that's what you're doing. You're, you're copying his life over and over. You're, you're following his steps. You, you move like him. You live like him. There's a fully formed life already out there that, that you copy until the steps become intuitive for you. But make no mistake, there is a difference between a mere example and a transformed life. Like you can get inspired by someone, Gandhi, <laughs> whatever. It's, it's fine to be inspired by him, but Christ can change you. You can be moved by you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Jesus offers you a different you. What God promises as you put on Christ, as you, as you trace your life over his, the power of the Holy Spirit changes us so that submission doesn't always become easy, but it becomes habit. Peter tells us Christ submitted to death, and that gives us everything we need for our own submission. May God give you ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that you in your wisdom and grace have, have given us really hard passages like this that, that spell out how we should live in a world that, that, that resists us and is trying to squeeze us. And though we often get, kind of rebel at this in our spirit, may, may you give us grace not only to understand but to obey. Teach us to obey, to listen to your word carefully. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.